Welcome back to another edition of the ASA Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Jason Woods. Today, we've got Dr. Jean-Marie Perrone, who's a professor of emergency medicine and the director of the Center for Addiction Medicine and Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. And she is going to give a great talk on ways that institutions can support new providers who are just starting to prescribe buprenorphine or combination buprenorphine naloxone. Dr. Perone is going to go through her experience and strategies that her own institution used to support new providers in this effort and increase the total number of providers who were willing to participate in this effort, as well as the number of their patients who were sent home with an outpatient prescription. Dr. Perone, the stage is yours. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this topic because I get a lot of questions about it, and I feel like we've really been challenged to continue to support new prescribers, and there's been a lot of shifting policy that has really changed that landscape a little bit. So I just want to highlight some of those opportunities that we can share. I have no disclosures. Today, we're going to identify some of the common barriers and pitfalls shared by potential prescribers and then provide the solutions and strategies that we found that might help guide early prescribers into feeling comfortable with buprenorphine administration and prescribing, especially if they've gotten a new data waiver with the training or without the training. So a lot of this momentum started with the landmark study from Yale in 2015, really supporting the evidence for buprenorphine from the emergency department. And then subsequently, there were uh, many pockets of programs that started and a little bit of coverage about these programs for emergency medicine. And around that same time, we were doing the same thing. We had just gotten buprenorphine on our formulary. We had uh, three downtown hospitals that were really facing the opioid crisis. We weren't really prescribing a lot of buprenorphine. So we had a couple of local champions, myself and a few others who agreed to take the waiver. Uh, But part of our initial push was just to say, just start buprenorphine in patients who are in the emergency department. Even if you can't do every other piece of the puzzle, just give them buprenorphine for withdrawal symptoms so that they at least know that there's a medication that will treat their symptoms and help them feel better. And maybe giving them that opportunity to be exposed to bup and, and use buprenorphine in the future. Simultaneously, the state of Pennsylvania created some incentives for hospitals to create these programs. And that meant that there was going to be some money coming to our health system if we prescribed buprenorphine from the emergency department and also had seven-day follow-ups. That really meant that not just giving it in the emergency department, but also writing those prescriptions. So we were able to get support and some financial incentive for our emergency physicians to take the full eight-hour training. Um, And we ran that incentive over six weeks. It was very brief. You had to do it or lose it. We did pay clinicians $750 to do the eight-hour training and produce their certificate. And that occurred uh, actually between Thanksgiving and Christmas in 2018. And that was actually a pretty good time for people to do online training. This was pre-COVID, but people had, you know, either worked the holiday or were off the other holiday. So people really had no difficulty in completing the training during that period. And what we found was that 89% of our emergency physicians did the training, and that was able to increase our rate of buprenorphine prescribing to patients with OUD from less than 1% in the first few months of the program to greater than 15% after the training. So that's pretty fancy and expensive. Um, There are other ways to do this. But subsequently, after we had this cohort of clinicians who were X-waivered, there still were a lot of other factors. You know, why are we prescribing to 15% and not 75%? And what we learned is that, you know, clinicians, while there were some champions and some near champions or a lot of people who just didn't have the time or really invested into this uh, as much as some of the other people. So there were clinician factors. 
there are certainly patient factors. Patients might not be ready for treatment. And so we can adjust this a little bit with some of the factors that we've been able to implement. And then the ED is a you know chaotic scene, as we all know. So it's not always a place or time for clinicians to learn something new or try something new in real time uh, without more support. So we've tried to build in some EHR innovation as well as screening to help identify patients with OED and to provide the clinician with that kind of in-their-face opportunity for prescribing. One thing we really found is that we had a wonderful group of peers who were super helpful, but they required the clinician to consult them or, or tell them that there was a patient there. And so we worked with automation systems in our innovation center to a kind of create a haiku alert for those of you who are on EPIC that actually told the peers when there was a patient with opioid use disorder in the emergency department. And then the peer would show up at the bedside, even often in the waiting room of the patient, and then navigate the patient when they got in to see the clinician. This is a patient who's already talked to you know the peer about Suboxone, is interested in treatment, and would be a good candidate. And the peers knew our algorithms really well, so they could literally help the clinicians at least find the published algorithm or give them some published dosing recommendations. Not that they were giving medical advice, but they knew where to find this information and really held the hands of the clinician. So peers can be really instrumental, but this identification and automation was really important. And again, our our peers are really important. Peers come in a lot of different flavors. Some are a little bit more abstinence-based, which really doesn't work well. You really have to find peers that support all models of recovery, and especially those who are advocates of shared decision-making around medications for opioid use disorder. So since then, we actually have also implemented universal screening. We know that not every patient has a history of OUD when they come to the emergency department. So we started using the single screener question where we asked patients uh, whether they'd struggled with painkillers, heroin, or fentanyl. And we also supported that with, you know, posters that said, we can start you on treatment today if you are struggling with opioid use disorder. So a positive screen actually deploys the nurse to measure a cows. And then also this banner goes on the patient's medical record in EPIC that says the patient is in opioid withdrawal, has a cows greater than eight or greater than 12, consider use of buprenorphine order set. In our new iteration, you can actually click on this banner and go directly to the order set. So really streamlining the treatment pathways for clinicians so they don't have to hunt around Epic looking for how to write those prescriptions or, or start people on buprenorphine. We also made this the default. We really made everyone hear about positive stories of uh, clinical success, what we called social norming, where we passed out these buttons saying, I have my X waiver and I use it. Uh, We gave people positive feedback, which allowed people to be directly get emails about follow-up. This patient was seen in the emergency department. Your prescription connected them to care. They're still in care and they're doing great and wanted to thank you. And other such things to close the loop for the providers that the work that they were doing was actually translating into really important outcomes for our patients. So some other barriers that have come up. Patients are frequently not in withdrawal when they come to the emergency department. In fact, they often have recently used opioids because they are so anxious and worried about the long waits and developing withdrawal while they're in the emergency department. So sometimes we don't start the buprenorphine in the emergency department, but we just write the prescription for home induction. Other times we start very low-dose buprenorphine, specifically Belbuca or other formulations of low-dose buprenorphine. Sometimes people just say they are too afraid of precipitated withdrawal, and um, they know that in their minds that there's difficulties with buprenorphine and fentanyl, and so they might decline because they say that it's made them sick. 
We try to really have a conversation with them around the low doses as not as risky for causing precipitated withdrawal. And sometimes we can motivate people to try a low dose started in the emergency department, and then we start them on a more gradual of titration as an outpatient. And then some patients prefer methadone to buprenorphine, partly for the reason above. And for the listeners who don't have access to the visuals, the reason above she was referring to was the concern for precipitating withdrawal. But for those patients, we tell them that, you know, they're, they're going to struggle to get into a methadone program. It's not like they can walk out of the emergency department and walk into a methadone program and get on a reasonable dose quickly. So what I offer them is that, you know, at least if you get started on buprenorphine, it's very easy to transition from buprenorphine to methadone, but not the other way around. And at least they'd have some protection against withdrawal symptoms as they are trying to get into a methadone program. And sometimes that can be effective, again, using those lower dose strategies. What about clinicians who are worried that the patient has no place for follow-up or that the patient has no insurance? We can iron out both of these challenges, but, you know, when you're prescribing at 11 p.m., it actually becomes very difficult to navigate that. So during the pandemic, we were operating a warm line and a virtual peers at the bedside who could come into, you know, on one of these monitors and, you know, really talk to the patient bedside. Telehealth has really created a lot of opportunities for treatment and follow-up for our patients. So we've now gotten funding to work on a citywide warm line. So it's really a telehealth bridge that allows us to bring a substance use navigator or a peer to the bedside of a patient or to do that via telephone um, on iPhone or just phone only. So the patients can call the first phone call is to a substance use navigator, and then the substance use navigator, if it's somebody who's appropriate for buprenorphine, connects them to our virtual urgent care that's being operated by the health system. So we're able to train a group of APPs who staff that urgent care telehealth line um, how to prescribe buprenorphine, and this connection is made, and then the peer or, or son actually navigates the patient through all of these steps, and including getting them to a pharmacy or making sure that their prescription goes through and that they're able to pick up the prescription and then arrange for their follow-up. And they can continue with us for a couple of weeks on the bridge as we then get them more stable to land in a primary care doctor's office for follow-up. So this is really created like a one phone number system where our clinicians who start BUP in the ED can just put this in as the follow-up number and allow for both reassurance to our clinicians that follow-up will occur and to connect our peers to patients who are being started in off hours. And then, uh, as everyone knows, you no longer need to do the eight-hour training in order to get your buprenorphine waiver. It does still require you to register on a website. It still takes a couple of months. So it's not like you can decide to write a prescription on the same day that you, you know, apply for your waiver. However, it does bypass the training, which is, in general, obviously a good thing. Eight hours was probably too much time for what was needed. However, now there's a lot of people who maybe have a waiver and don't have any idea where to begin. Um, so there's still really a need for a shortened training. And we have a little bit of information about how to get your waiver and as well as a short training on our website, which is PennCenterForAddictionMedicinePolicy.org. So a couple of years ago, we got a grant from the Independence Blue Cross Foundation to teach a short course of buprenorphine. And the hypothesis was that after a 15 to 30 minute session, that we could convince clinicians to at least give buprenorphine in the emergency department. They wouldn't have had their waiver because this you know, wouldn't have qualified as waiver training. But it was short and it was administered to residents and APPs and faculty at about 10 health systems and residency programs around the Philadelphia area. And we actually tried to be a little bit fancy with behavioral 
a health science to incentivize one group of people to get text messaging every week to uh, remind them about the value of buprenorphine, the evidence basis for it, how you can save a life. They get a text message every week. And then we also incentivize them to text us if they actually did start buprenorphine on someone, if they had given it to somebody who was having opioid withdrawal. And so in the two arms, we were able to demonstrate that in both groups, 31% overall of providers reported administering buprenorphine for the first time within the 90 days following the treatment, with no real difference in administration rates between, well, no significant difference in administration rates between the two arms. So we concluded that the behavioral health intervention did not make a difference. However, we were able to demonstrate that a third of prescribers can watch a 15 to 30 minute video or live presentation on how to start buprenorphine and can actually do that. So this is a paper that's coming out shortly and hopefully will lend support for shorter training strategies for at least emergency physicians who can be pivotal in starting treatment and don't need to know all the details of office-based treatment. So again, we have lots of resources on our website. Under clinical, we actually have all of our pathways for home induction, as well as how to start buprenorphine with a lower dose pathway, as well as the traditional pathway, and then some of the other information about education. So that short BUP 101 video of the training that we did is actually on our website as well. So just-in-time training is another way to support providers. In Philadelphia, we also have something called the Opioid Assistance Resource Hotline, which can lend guidance to clinicians in the same way that they might call about how to uh, manage an, an overdose of any kind, a cyclic antidepressant or a calcium channel blocker. Clinicians are pretty comfortable calling the Poison Center for guidance, and so we created some of these opioid assistance resources uh, copied after a similar program in San Francisco that was called the Beeper, where a group of clinicians would actually also be available by page to help clinicians in real time. So we've tried to create all of that in our health system with real time, you know, phone advice or poison center advice or this kind of just in time training. So with that, I will close and just say that there's a lot of people doing this work and it's really extremely gratifying and really exciting when you make a difference and get a patient into treatment that can really alter the trajectory of their use disorder and give them one step forward in battling opioid addiction. That was such a good and succinct overview of some successful strategies that you used to support clinicians and lower the barrier to the ED prescribing of buprenorphine. You mentioned a few different resources that I'll link to in the show notes, but did you have any particularly useful ideas or ways that you helped convince reluctant clinicians to participate? We do. I mean, in an academic medical center, you have to cast a pretty wide net. So in that setting, we have had our peers go to our medical student classes. I've presented many times with peers who share their story of recovery that started after an overdose. In community hospitals where we've tried to also implement this, um, you don't have all those other providers where you can develop a resident champion in internal medicine or someone else. So in the emergency department, we use those same strategies of having peers share the stories of our patients. And so when the peers are around in the emergency department, they will literally see a clinician, you know, that they worked with a few days ago and provide them that brief feedback about how a patient is doing. So I would say, you know, real life narratives of patients doing well continues to be uh, the most solid way of improving this care and getting people to really believe in what we're doing and reassuring them for people who are, you know, maybe a little uncomfortable that this is this is not going to lead to suboxone trafficking from their DEA, but that this is really going to go to people who are uh, trying so hard to take that step that's very difficult to navigate from all the high barriers of care. 
I often tell the story that in Pennsylvania, we have a 1-800-GET-HELP-NOW phone number. And, you know, with that number, you can call, you can get transferred from a West Virginia hotline to somewhere closer to your home. And then you get transferred to a place that can do intake. And this is all over the phone. And once you get to the place, you know, that will describe how you will be seen, they give you an appointment for two weeks. On that day, you know, you'll come, you'll be treated like cattle, you show up at 8am, you might be seen before noon, and you still won't see a clinician. That'll be your intake. And then a couple weeks after that, you'll get a visit with a, with a clinician who can prescribe buprenorphine. So that's two or three weeks or even a month of waiting. And we really know people need treatment immediately. So when I share those stories of what the alternative is for our patients, I feel like our emergency physicians can really um, jump on board with understanding why this is the only low barrier care access for so many people who are having a treatable moment. That is really great wording that speaks to me, the use of the phrases low barrier to care and treatable moment. You also brought up a resource called the warm line, and I'm wondering if you could detail that further. So the warm line is staffed by a substance use navigator. So it's really kind of the answer to that 1-800-GET-HELP-NOW where you get help a month later. This is to provide same-day care immediately. So the substance use navigator takes the first call. If it's someone appropriate for BUP, then they can connect them to the urgent care that will prescribe the BUP on that day. So that is funded by the city uh, public health department. It was something that we proposed as a solution to the lack of same-day care. We're working on working with the insurers to get their Medicaid referral number to also feed into this. So if somebody's calling their own insurer looking for treatment, that we can help them, you know, be that call transfer to somebody who's actually looking for opioid resources. The It had, doesn't have really anything to do with the Poison Center. The Poison Center has this opioid assistance resource phone line where they develop some protocols. Uh, we develop some protocols and treatment of withdrawal management and initiation of buprenorphine uh, that the poison specialists can share with providers who think to call them. It doesn't really get utilized that much, but we thought that it might be a good model for clinicians who are already used to calling the Poison Center for other clinical scenarios that they might need guidance. It's, uh, yeah, again, it's fairly underutilized and it's clinician facing, right? The patients don't call that, but the, the warm line is, is rapidly growing because, you know, we're filling that gap. And um, I think people realize that this is a pretty easy way, easier really than even coming to the emergency department, although that it's not intended to bypass the first visit, but we would accept patients who are looking for first visit. Thank you, Dr. Perone. That is going to be our time for today, but I did really enjoy that discussion. I thought you highlighted things that institutions can do to support clinicians in all sorts of new efforts and really lower the barrier to providing what we know to be appropriate, best patient-centered care. I will definitely take with me your references to treatable moments, and I hope you come back. For you listeners, thank you for taking a listen to us today. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. You can find the rest of our ASAP Equal podcast series at the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com, or through the ASAP Equal hub on the ASAP website. Thank you.